You're listening to the Jolly Swagman Podcast. Here's your host, Joe Walker. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, swagmen and swagettes, welcome back to the Jolly Swagman Podcast. It is great to have you here. This week we have a fascinating episode in store. So what, or who, is our subject? On Easter Sunday in 1946, in Furl, Sussex, a 62-year-old British man, known to his friends as Maynard, died. John Maynard Keynes was declared by the Times in its obituary of him to have been the greatest economist since Adam Smith. Close to 75 years later, his ideas remain alive. A receding sliver of people have ever shaped political and intellectual history as much as Keynes. In his time, he bestrode British public and intellectual life like a colossus. The reign of Keynes derived mainly from his brains – Two years before his death, Keynes was at the Bretton Woods Conference fighting for British interests and for his economic legacy. Here's how Lionel Robbins, a rival of Keynes's, described Keynes in his diary from that expedition. Quote, In the late afternoon, we had a joint session with the Americans at which Keynes expounded our views on the bank. This went very well indeed. Keynes was in his most lucid and persuasive mood, and the effect was irresistible. At such moments, I often find myself thinking that Keynes must be one of the most remarkable men that have ever lived. The quick logic, the bird-like swoop of intuition, the vivid fancy, the wide vision, above all, the incomparable sense of the fitness of words all combined to make something several degrees beyond the limit of ordinary human achievement. The Americans sat entranced as the godlike visitors sang and the golden light played around. End quote. That was from one of Keynes's ideological competitors. Keynes was, above all, a patriot, but his intellectual legacy is open to us all, and his driving purposes of unlocking the puzzle of prosperity and maximising the prospects of peace remain as relevant today as they were in the first half of the 20th century. My guest in this episode helps us to understand the worldview of Keynes and the man behind the models. Zach Carter is a senior reporter at the Huffington Post, where he covers Congress, the White House and economic policy. He cut his teeth at SNL Financial as a banking reporter during the 2008 financial crisis. And he is the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Price of Peace, Money, Democracy, and the Life of John Maynard Keynes. It was named one of the best books of 2020 by the book critics of the New York Times, The Economist, Bloomberg, and many others. Without much further ado, please enjoy my conversation with the mighty Zach Carter. Zach Carter, welcome to the Jolly Swagman podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Zach, I admire not only your chutzpah in writing a biography of Keynes in the shadow of Lord Skidelsky's three-volume masterpiece, but the fact that you were successful, The Price of Peace, was, in my opinion, and in the opinion of many others, one of the best books of 2020. Why was now the right time for another biography of Keynes? Well, first, thank you so much. That is a, a very generous assessment of the book. I think I, I, I came to Keynes through the 2008 financial crisis. I was a, a banking reporter at a, a financial trade publication. And 
all of my sources were at the time very conventional, you know, kind of rational markets kind of people. Markets know best. Government spending is inefficient. Um, the, the market is generally self-correcting and these kind of ideas. And, and suddenly in 2008, all of these same people were saying, we need a big bank rescue program and also a, a, a fiscal stimulus program. Otherwise, the world is going to end. And I think these people were perfectly sincere. They had, they had changed their minds. I, I don't think there was, there was some sort of, you know, underhandedness involved in this. But I also thought that if these people had suddenly converted to uh, what I think most people would recognize as, as a, a broadly Keynesian view of the world, they couldn't possibly be very well versed in all of the, the sort of philosophical underpinnings surrounding it. And, uh, and, and so I started, I started reading Keynes. I, I did not start with the, the general theory. I, I started with the economic consequences of the piece because the general theory is just such a, a hornet's nest of a book. But um, but the economic consequences of the peace, the, the book that, that makes Keynes famous in 1919 when he's criticizing the, the terms of the Treaty of Versailles, it's a much more accessible work, both in terms of the economics um, and, and in terms of the, the, the way it's written, the, the literary presentation. Um, you know, this is uh, a book that I think most people can, can understand pretty intuitively, which is why it was so successful. And I thought, you know, this is not really about debt and deficits at all. Uh, if, if you read that book, there's, there's nothing about counter-cyclical spending in there. Um, it's, it's about war and peace and, uh, and about humanity trying to live together and, and a little bit about political leadership too. So uh, I, I became very, very interested and, and just started, started reading. And to your, your point about, uh, about Lord Skidelsky, I, I talked to him several times over the course of writing of this book. I think he's a just fantastic scholar. Um, you know, his books were written over the course of uh, almost a 30-year period. I mean, they're an amazing um, piece of scholarship. But like Keynes in his own life, I think Keynes's legacy changes as the, the political and economic climate changes. Uh, so the last edition of, of Lord Skidelsky's book came out in uh, 2001 or so, been, been 20 years. Um, the, the views within the economics profession had changed. And so Keynes's sort of changing worldview and, and the significance of it, I think, had, had changed for uh, a contemporary reader. And if you went back and read those books, um, you know, you'd, you'd just be seeing them through a different you know, historical interpretive lens. And I thought I was thinking in particular of 2008 as being as being a watershed moment and, and the rise of all of these um, Right-wing uh, in the United States, we tend to call them populist movements, but I think the better word is, is really just authoritarian movements, um, both in in the United States but also around the world. That all seemed very much um, in a sort of unpleasant harmony with what Keynes lived through and what what, the, what I, I saw as the major project of his life, to which his economics, for which he's much more famous, was I, I think sort of a you know, a, a, a subset or a, a sort of set of tactics for treating this this broader philosophical and political problem. What was the state of economics, both as a field and as a profession, when Keynes was getting started? It's a great question. There's a, uh, I think, it, at least the, in the United States, there's a tendency to think of economics as this field that's full of um, people studying money and and having attitudes similar to those in a. Uh, in a you know elite business school, um, that is not the way the economics field existed at at the turn of the twentieth century. Uh, 
Keynes didn't even study economics when he was at Cambridge. He studied mathematics. It was just a very young discipline. People had been doing economics for a long time. People like you know Adam Smith or John Stuart Mill, but uh, in the British tradition at least, you know there are, there are of course other traditions as well. But but these people were thought of as as sort of. Uh, philosophers more broadly. The, the economic stuff that they did uh, wasn't a, a specialty that uh, they, they focused on exclusively. They were also interested in moral philosophy. So John Stuart Mill you know, is somebody who's, who's probably more famous today as a philosopher than as an economist, but he was a very important economist in his day. It was also a field with, a, I think, much more disagreement over what it actually was and, and what the, the purpose of economics was for a time. But by the turn of the 20th century, there was a kind of broad consensus that had formed over the wisdom of uh, what Keynes referred to as laissez-faire economics, sort of free trade and free markets will um, bring the world to a harmonious equilibrium um, and, and march everyone together hand in hand to progress. And that worldview became very difficult to square with events in the world at the outbreak of World War I. Um, it was difficult to square with events as they existed uh, before World War I if you did not live on the European continent and were uh, you know, in, in one of the, the various colonial um, occupied sort of territories of the British Empire or, or the other European empires um, where, where violence and you know, dysfunction was, was uh, quite common. But seeing that violence come home to Europe in World War I, I think, changed a lot of, of attitudes about how the world works and, and what economics was supposed to do and made people rethink what the sort of correct government policy response was, what the, the sort of managerial outlook for the government um, with regards to the economy ought to be. And Keynes was, some, was, was not the only person who, whose ideas started to change as a result of the war, but I think his set of ideas was by far the most successful, at least of the, the European thinkers trying to grapple with, with what had happened at the time. What strikes me about Keynes and other members of the so-called clerisy, the educated elite, was that apart from being intellectuals, they also had a sense of responsibility for being the ruling class. So not just for producing ideas, but also for governing, getting involved in the affairs of the state, joining the civil service, solving practical problems. Was this a uniquely British tradition among public intellectuals? And if so, where did it come from? A very good question. I, I do not think it was a uniquely British um, point of view. I think Keynes and his social milieu, he was, he was a member of uh, the Bloomsbury set. So these are artists and writers and poets, uh, people like Virginia Woolf or uh, E.M. Forster, who are very, very accomplished artistic people, um, at least by, by the mid-1920s. When they become good friends, they're all, they're all just young people who, uh, you know, like to drink champagne and um, sleep with each other. But uh, th- that community is part of an international community. Bloomsbury is, is embedded in a world that's communicating both artistically and, and just directly corresponding with similarly minded people in St. Petersburg, in, uh, in Berlin, in, in Paris, uh, you know, a bunch of Keynes' friends go and, and visit Pablo Picasso and Gertrude Stein at one point. And I think that that artistic worldview is, is sort of a subset of, of a broader elite 
worldview. In, in many ways, these artists see themselves as being countercultural icons, people who are opposed to uh, imperialism and um, sort of extractive kind of uh, governing strategies of the various European empires at the time. Uh, but I think they get a lot of their ideas about what constitutes good rulership um, and, and good leadership from, um, from the way that the elite looks at itself or looked at itself at the time. And they, they just believed that the elite wasn't very good at it. Um, I, I think that is a, a European-wide phenomenon. There, there was a sense that th- these, um, these empires wanted to not only create uh, you know, a prosperous world for um, their, their people, but also a, a culturally rich world. Um, you know, French elites and British elites had a very serious cultural rivalry for a very long time, um, to the point in World War I, where when Keynes was, uh, was running war finance for the British Empire, uh, he sees an opportunity to scoop up a bunch of Degas paintings on the cheap at a, a sort of fire sale in Paris, and is very excited to go and, and pick up all of these, these wonderful French masterpieces and get them in British museums. Um, so I think that's, I think that's uh, a fairly common worldview, at least across the European empires. I, as for where it comes from, I, 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 you know, I can only speculate. I, I think some, something about... I, I see Keynes as someone who's very deeply embedded in the, um, the traditions of, of liberal British imperialism. So he believes that the British empire is this force for... Um, truth and, and justice and goodness and light, the way I think uh, a lot of American exceptionalists today think of the United States. Um, and when he comes into you know, facts that conflict with that, he's, that, that, that perception, he's very distressed, uh, World War I being the, the, the biggest of those, of those facts. Um, but I, I think that imperial, that, that sort of liberal imperial tradition, um, it's despite being you know, paternalistic, um, did take seriously uh, the idea that there were um, there were responsibilities for uh, you know the the overlords of the world. Um, they, they did have a right to rule, but they they had to they had to rule well. Um, and I, I think looking back, at least from an American perspective, it's it's easy to lump all of the imperialists together as one sort of um, bad uh, monolithic. Uh, you know, organization. Um, and, and there's, you know, I don't think that's necessarily <laughs> a confusion, but at the time people fought over these things. There, there were, there were disputes among the imperialists over what was, what, what was considered good government and, and who had a right to the, you know, the largesse of the empire. And, and so I, I think it, it's, it's all rooted in, in, in European imperialism, uh, both for better and for worse. I want to talk about one of Keynes's more underrated skills and that is marketing. Was the general theory a deliberate allusion to Einstein's general theory of relativity? It most certainly was. Uh, it was he 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 was claimed just the way that Einstein suggested that uh, Newtonian physics was sort of a special case in a more general theory of of how the world worked. Keynes wanted to suggest that the the laissez-faire prosperity of uh, pre-1913 Britain was a special case of a broader system of economics in which, in fact, markets tend toward uh, a, a, let's say, discordant 
equilibrium, uh, an equilibrium of un- underemployment in which people are not employed and um, countries are at each other's throats and over resources and peace is fragile. One of Keynes's better known lines is in the long run, we're all dead. And it's often misinterpreted, as I'm sure you know, Zach. For example, the historian Neil Ferguson read it as like a YOLO kind of statement and insinuated that it might have been colored by Keynes's sexuality and the fact that he had no children. What did Keynes really mean by, in the long run, we are all dead? Yes, terribly misinterpreted, uh, and not only by by uh, Neil Ferguson, who, you know, despite his, uh, at times, successes, is a very talented historian, I think, um, Rand Paul, a senator in the United States, just made a big a big fuss about the the same basic idea here, where he said, you know, Keynes just didn't care about the future. He didn't care about his grandchildren. He he, he just said, you know, we're all going to die, so let's let's live while we're young. <laughs> um, that that is wrong. Um, in the long run, we're all dead. It comes from a 1923 book called A Tract on Monetary Reform, and in it, Keynes says it may be the case that in the long run, all of these, you know magical functions of the market will eventually balance and lead to some sort of harmonious prosperity. But an enormous amount of stuff can happen over the short run. If in the long run, everything is okay, but in the short run, we're all dead, (laughs) that is is not a particularly helpful uh, 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 state of affairs. You have to, life is lived in in the short run. So you, you, if, depending on how long the long run is, you know, you, he even says in certain places later on, Adam Smith considered the long run to be you know, more than 90 years. So entire generations could, could be born and pass away before economics would, uh, the, the self-correcting market would self-correct. That's not helpful. Um, if you're an economist, you've got to do something to create prosperity in, in the here and now. Um, and as his thought developed uh, over the subsequent decade or so, uh, Keynes came to believe not only that you could see a lot of you know, unpleasant uh, and inefficient market outcomes over the short run, um, those unpleasant outcomes could create their own problems that would prevent this, this good long run from coming into being. So if you have a terrible depression and a bunch of authoritarians come to power and take over the government, the the market's never going to get a chance to correct the the bad thing will have will have happened um, and society will have been uh, will have been damaged in in a you know very serious and permanent way so that's what he meant by in the long run we're all dead he did not mean everybody you know go out and party it's, <laughs> it's you're going to die anyway <laughs> Although he did, he did, uh, he was a bon vivant <laughs> in saying that. I think there was a, there's a lovely line. I'm not sure if it is apocryphal or true, but apparently towards the end of his life, he said that what, my, my only regret in life is having not drunk enough champagne. <laughs> I do not know if that one ever happened. I, I kept it out of the book. Um, because I just couldn't find the the evidence for it. There are a few of these. There's there's one like when you know, he's responding to some journalist who says, "Why do you change your mind so often, Mr. Keynes?" And he says, "Well, when the facts change, my ideas change. What do you do, sir?" Uh, again, sounds great, but it's there's no evidence that he he ever said that. Um, at least none that I could find. Um, and I believe Lord Skidelsky is with me on this, although it's been a while since we talked about it. Um, so. 
it 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 rings true though because it's the sort of thing that Keynes would have said. Um, Bloomsbury was obsessed with the good life, and Keynes came to economics after studying philosophy, where he was studying what the nature of the good. What does it mean for something to be good? Uh, what does it mean to live a good life? And he had this very sophisticated and detailed philosophical worldview from his friends at, at Cambridge and, and then from Bloomsbury, where a good life was basically doing all the things that his friends in Bloomsbury liked to do. It was reading great, great works of literature, contemplating great works of art, uh, enjoying the company of, of brilliant and beautiful friends, uh, and, and having a very uh, robust uh, sex life. Uh, which certainly in Bloomsbury everybody did. They, they, it was a community of people that were uh, constantly uh, trading each other as, as, as lovers and uh, seems very stressful, frankly, to me. But, um, but it, it worked for them in, in a way. I think, it, it, I think the romantic conflict that, that resulted sort of tied them all together closely the way uh, other difficult experiences can bind people together. Um, uh, I don't know if you ever played high school sports, but uh, I had a very unpleasant time rowing crew in when I was in high school. But I was very close with my my crew crewmates just because we hated doing it so much. You know, we we understood this this misery together. So I think Bloomsbury was a bit like that. But but the whole point was, was you know, he he did live a life that was full of partying all the time when he when he was young. I mean, they mm. they would hang out and drink champagne and cut each other's hair and debate all the wonderful things that they wanted to debate. Everything that Keynes had, had wanted to do since he was since he was very young, so he was not a man who was prone to um, uh, you know asceticism or or uh, an austere vision of life. He he had a very um, boisterous and rich lifestyle that he came to believe could be shared by the broader community. It wasn't just for fancy people in in Bloomsbury, uh, and and so he spent most of his adulthood trying to find economic strategies and uh, diplomatic solutions that would, that would allow that lifestyle to be democratized. There's a lovely quote attributed to Dorothy Parker about Bloomsbury. They lived in squares, painted in circles, and loved in triangles. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I mean, Dorothy Parker had a way with words, so... Uh... <laughs> Indeed. So... So did Keynes. He was an accomplished writer. And on top of that, he had many years to think about the ideas in the general theory and how to express them. So why is it so difficult to read? Oh, this is uh, probably the most controversial point I've made in the book with um, other Keynes scholars. Um, my, my view is that um, Keynes enjoyed making the book dense and difficult. If you read the, the, the I can't believe it, remember if it's called the preface or the introduction, but the, the, the sort of forward to the book, he says, the general public is welcome to listen to these debates at this time, to eavesdrop on them. But right now, this is really a debate for academic economists. Academic economists need to figure out how, you know, our theoretical underpinnings because we've been wrong for a long time. And once we get it figured out, then, uh, you know, our brilliance can be can be distilled and translated for political leaders and and for the general public. 
So feel free to listen in, you know, regular, regular folks, but you're, you're really not going to understand this. He was aware of how difficult the, the book was, was to read, and he was trying to appeal to an audience um, that thought of itself as a particularly sophisticated audience and, um, and understood themselves to be sort of intellectual I think masters of the universe is is too strong. That's that's a, a a later 20th century conception for for you know major players in financial markets. But but people who were were sort of lords of the the true intellectual course of events that, that had some sort of ownership over over that intellectual status, which translated into power in 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 politics. The other way to think of it is that these ideas are just very difficult um, and very complex, and, and Keynes was still working them out on the fly when he, um, when he published the general theory. He wasn't quite sure how all of them fit together, and so the book's just a bit of a mess, and he didn't have time to, um, to clean up the language to make it more accessible. I don't find that one quite as compelling. I think um, even other dense works that he published previously are, are more accessible than the general theory, and... Uh, he has this capability when he wants to communicate with the public of being very, very clear. He he has a whole. He spends most of his career as a uh, as a public intellectual who's writing for you know ordinary publications that the gen, for a general audience. Uh, he's he's running the Nation and Athenaeum and writing in it all the time. Some of his most important work comes in these sort of pamphlets, policy pamphlets that are, are available to the general public. This, some of the, some of his ideas that become sort of formalized in the general theory are, are released to the public in these these types of, uh, of of pamphlets beforehand. So he has the capacity to be clear when he wants to. I th- I think the difficulty of the general theory is is an attempt for Keynes to correct the the ways that he exerts influence over government for for most of his career, he's getting the right answers and not getting them implemented. So just about every policy that he you know, lays down a marker on from the beginning of World War I until the beginning of World War II, Keynes, Keynes loses. He'll say, you know, we, sh- we should have lower reparations against Germany. Nope. Uh, he'll say we should do He's, he's advocating for deficit spending as early as 1929, and the general theory is not published until 1936. Obviously, that doesn't happen. These big, big fights over policy, he keeps losing, and he thinks, well, maybe it's because I, you know, I, I thought that I could persuade the public, and by persuading the public, the leaders would act, but that doesn't seem to be true. I think I need to persuade, persuade some sort of elite audience, and they will persuade leaders to act. Um, I think it's it's open to debate whether that was actually successful. Uh, you know, the the general theory in a lot of ways is effective in the United States after the the Franklin Roosevelt New Deal deficit spending is is already happening, is already taking place. It sort of legitimizes what what's happening in the United States, but in Britain, the deficit spending doesn't become. Uh, the norm until until the war, and it's it's the war, um, not the ideas that force the government's hand on on adopting what we would now call Keynesian policies. But it's one thing to say that Keynes's professed target audience were other academic economists, 
And then another thing to take the additional step, which is the step you take in the book, that he had a kind of meta strategy and the sheer ugliness of the book was intended to create a prestige industry of interpreters or high priests, which would then open the doors to the corridors of power to Keynesian economists. That that seems kind of speculative. Is is there good evidence that that's what he intended? Well, it's been a while since I dug into the specifics of of this uh, of this issue, but he writes letters to to friends and, and other economists where he explains his his worldview. I think in in pretty pretty clear detail. Um, there's there's one nineteen thirty five letter to. Uh, I'm forgetting the name of the socialist, the Fabian socialist uh, playwright, Bernard Shaw, um, mm-hmm. where I think he's pretty explicit about this. There's uh, some correspondence back and forth with Joan Robinson, where I think he's pretty explicit about it. Can't get you um, chapter and verse, but uh, but yeah, letters letters to other friends from Bloomsbury, um, the wife or girlfriend of, um, uh, who is the, the philosopher? Bertrand Russell. Um, you can see I'm, I'm trying to pull from 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 these this different correspondence. I don't have it. I don't have it handy. <laughs> I can't quote a chapter and verse. But but yes, he he does discuss this stuff in uh, in in letters with um, with with his friends. Now, are those letters representative of uh, you know the way he was thinking every day of the week, or are are these just a handful of of things that happen to have been preserved uh, that uh, you know establish? Uh, some fact pattern that you can interpret. I, I, you know, I think other scholars are are, are I, th- I, I think it's it's reasonable to dispute the interpretation, uh, but I but I, I think disputing it is wrong, nevertheless. Why did Keynes distance himself from chartalism in the general theory? I don't know if he does. Um, I dispute the the premise. Uh, it, he's not as explicit about it as he is in a Treatise on Money in 1930, where you know he spends the, the whole opening chapter talking about chartalism and Knapp's theory of money. Um, I, I think the general theory is is just yeah. He's already said that. He's already made that point. Um, so he's talking about other factors. Um, and clearly, a Treatise on Money, for all its influence, you know, people like Joseph Schumpeter thought it was. Uh, just a fantastic, you know, piece of work. Even though they couldn't stand Keynes's politics, um, you know, the, nobody reads a, a treatise on money anymore. Uh, <laughs> they read the general <laughs> theory, and I think that's that's sort of part of the problem. I, I think I think to really understand Keynes's theoretical um, perspective in the general theory, it, it helps to to understand how he is continuing and breaking with the ideas in the treatise on money. I think, I think the chartalism is, is something that he is assuming to be, um, to be, uh, you know, continuous with the, with the book, the, pre- the previous book. Mm-hmm. You mentioned FDR's new deal a little earlier. How should we view Keynes's involvement in the new deal? Was he influential or was he just a redundant kibitzer? Both. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, th- there are people in FDR's uh, New Deal who have come to a sort of rough and ready uh, vision of Keynesian economics on, on their own. Um, Mariner Eccles, who is FDR's um, Fed chairman, really the person who, who makes the Federal Reserve into, a, uh, you know, a, a newly legitimate force in American economics after the, the financial crisis of 1929. Um, he... 
he basically thinks you have to do deficit spending and, and public work spending in, in order to to get com- the the economy moving again when it when it stalls out. That's that's the I think the common sense general uh, understanding of what Keynesian economics is still to this day for most people. And there are a lot of people in the Roosevelt administration who think that way. Keynes, as a British economist, however, gives them a certain uh, intellectual legitimacy. So, you know, Eccles is chair of the Fed, but he's also just this guy from, uh, you know, a Utah banking family. Uh, Utah is a very thinly populated state at the time. It still is today. It's basically a whole bunch of desert. So some guy came in from the desert who runs a bank that, uh, you know, caters to sheep farmers. And this is not considered super prestigious in Washington. Um, However, British intellectuals who hang out with great poets and great artists and great great novelists, uh, Americans look over at, uh, at, at somebody like that and say, ah, that person really knows what's going on. They must be quite brilliant. And, and it, there's, a, there's a certain power that, um, that Keynes was able to wield over people who had been to uh, graduate school and studied economics who were in the Roosevelt administration. Uh, you asked earlier about what, what was the economics profession like at the turn of the 20th century. It changed an awful lot with the New Deal because there were so many new government agencies that needed both straightforward economists, just people to do macroeconomic work, and also people who understood how to think about the world through an economic lens. Because you know, prior to the New Deal, getting a position in you know, the Treasury Department, for instance, you know, being an economist wasn't uh, in any way uh, you know, a, a, a considered a necessary prerequisite or, or credential for that job. Mariner Eccles didn't have uh, you know, a PhD when he became uh, head of the Federal Reserve. If you had studied poetry at Harvard and, and worked at the right bank for a few years, you know, yeah, sure, you could work at the Treasury and be a top official. That changed with, with the New Deal. You had all of these people who needed to be credentialed in important new positions of government where they could actually wield a lot of power, move a lot of resources, change a lot of policies administratively. And those people were reading Keynes. And, uh, and I think I think Keynes did have a lot of influence over the way those agencies were run, what they did, whether he was influential in getting the administration to deficit spend, I think is much more uh, tenuous. The, the Roosevelt administration spent big early on, but it didn't really want to. I mean, it did want to spend big, but it didn't want to be running deficits. It just sort of ran deficits because tax revenues didn't exist. The economy was so terrible. They were really trying not to run big deficits at first. It's not until 1938 that they really start putting their foot on the gas intentionally. Um, there, there, are, there, there are disputes among Roosevelt's top advisors this entire period about whether deficits are good or deficits are bad. So Keynes is influential in those, in those discussions. But again, the general theory is not published until 1936. And so Keynes's ideas about deficit spending are out there, but they're out there in academic journal articles. They're out there in... Um, you know, pamphlets on British government policy and, uh, you know, what we now call magazine articles, uh, they're newspaper articles in Britain. So uh, I think he does have influence, but the way that he has influence is much more complex than just Keynes had an idea, he persuaded everybody, and the Roosevelt administration did it. One of those economists who got his start during that 
atmosphere of Keynesianism in the New Deal was John Kenneth Galbraith, right? Yes. Yes. Galbraith becomes famous in the 1950s uh, as, as a, you know, another public intellectual, but he is working as an, as a, an economist in the agriculture department as early as the, the early 1930s, like 1933, I believe. And then, and then he comes back to Washington again uh, during World War II, uh, running the Office of Price Administration, which is basically the nationwide price-fixing agency that the Roosevelt administration uh, starts up to, to deal with you know, the scarcities created by the war. I want to step back out of the general theory and rewind by 15 years. So 15 years before the general theory, Keynes had published a treatise on probability. For, for the uninitiated, can you just give a brief summary of what Keynes was trying to achieve? <laughs> <laughs> a treatise on probability. Uh, he was. It sounds like it's a book about math when you when you hear a treatise on probability. The um, treatise on probability is is in many ways um, a book that's against a mathematical way of understanding reality in the future and of reducing human reason to fractions and percentage points. Um, it's a book about the nature of rationality and what it means to be a rational or reasonable person making decisions in a world where we do not know what the future will bring. So it comes from this, uh, he's, he's intervening in this philosophical milieu with people like Ludwig Wittgenstein, Bertrand Russell, uh, Frank Ramsey, and these, these big heavyweight Cambridge philosophers. And he's trying to, he's trying to give a theory of knowledge, um, something that philosophers would care about, not something that uh, economists would care about. And when he's working on, on this theory, he doesn't think of himself chiefly as an economist. He's, he's thinking about himself as a Cambridge academic in this, this philosophical world. And he says, look, if we don't know what the future is going to hold, how can we make a decision in the present that is that we can call rational? We don't know what's coming. So how can we do something now that's going to prepare ourselves and, and you know, the people around us for a future state of events? We don't know what those, those future events are. This becomes a very useful problem in economics because, of course, economists never know the future. When you look at forecasters, you know, macroeconomic forecasters, they're constantly getting things wrong, right? So what does it mean to be a good macroeconomic forecaster? Um, getting it right, obviously, is, is you know, helpful. But can you get it wrong and also be you know, reasonable? And, and Keynes says, look, we have to imagine that we are making decisions based on probabilities. And something can be rational if... You know, a decision can be ra- rational if, if the outcome that we are predicting with, with our, our action or our choice um, is, is probable. But he says you can't put a fraction or a percentage on those future outcomes. There is no uh, – you don't get to repeat the experiment. It's not like reaching into a bag full of, uh, you know, full of coins and, and knowing that, well, you know, if there's a certain number of nickels and a certain number of quarters in here – and, uh, and, you know, if I reach in, I've got a 20% chance of, of picking one or the other. That's, that's, that's not what he's saying. He's saying there is 
a prob- something can be probable and can be objectively probable, but to know that it is objectively probable is not to run some sort of fancy equation. It is to just perceive directly, intuitively, that it is probable. It's a, a sort of formulation of a philosophical idea that um, G.E. Moore put forward in 1903 in his book uh, Principia Ethica, um, where good things exist in the world, they are good, they are objectively good, and human beings as rational agents can perceive them to be good, but goodness for more is this irreducible thing. It cannot be divided into subparts. It can't be, it's, it's not like a molecule that's made up of other atoms. It just is the thing. He called it an organic unity. Um, and he said a good life is made up of different, you know, assembling different organic unities over the course of your, of, of your life. So Keynes is, is applying that idea to probability. And uh, <laughs> it is a 400-page book. It's very thorny. Um, but it's, he, when he published it, he thought it was his, his great masterpiece. He said, I, I will never undertake something so ambitious again. And it sounds silly because he does all these other incredible things. But in, in a certain respect, I think that statement holds up. He's say this is his attempt to give a theory of human knowledge and of what it means to know in, in the context of, uh, I think, a, a fairly unique, um, certainly within the kind of enlightenment rationalist tradition, a, a fairly unique frame for, for what knowledge is. Uh, the book is not influential. I think uh, Frank Ramsey has a lot of critiques of it, but um, I think the really important critique is just that Wittgenstein says this whole way of doing philosophy is silly. And if you look at you know who is the dominant thinker in Anglo-American philosophy departments over the century after a treatise on probability is is released or a theory of probability is released, it's not um, it's not John Maynard Keynes. It's Ludwig Wittgenstein. Ramsey's critiques were certainly important, though, and I know he only gets a passing kind of mention in The Price of Peace, but he really rolled Keynes intellectually, and Ramsey's subjective probabilities went on to become subjective Bayesianism and then had a really important influence over economic thought. And effectively, Ramsey won the intellectual argument against Keynes, what was it about a young guy in his early 20s that was able to to best the great John Maynard Keynes in that argument? Or alternatively, what was it about Keynes that was so willing to exceed the debate to Ramsey? Both great questions. Uh, so Frank Ramsey, for people who don't know, uh, was this brilliant mathematician and philosopher in Cambridge. Uh, but he died very young. I think he was 26 when he died. So all of this stuff was happening. Uh, Keynes was a bit of an old elder statesman at this point uh, within the Cambridge philosophy world. But Keynes in 1920, 1921 was not you know, the grand old man of British uh, economics that he would become. So I think it's important always when you, you see him being challenged by folks over the course of his career to remember that he doesn't have this great legacy yet where he is considered one of the great economists in history. He is considered a much more influential person within that milieu because he had such a powerful role in the British Treasury during World War I. But he very famously left the Treasury. Uh, he also had an enormous smash hit best-selling book in The Economic Consequences of the Peace in 1919. 
So I think he, so it's important to remember that he is, you know, a, uh, a more prestigious and powerful figure than Frank Ramsey at the time, but he's not this towering giant um, that, that we see today. So there, there, there is a bit of a perspective issue. I also just think Cambridge, the debating um, kind of culture there uh, was one where a lot of, particularly in the economics department, people thought of themselves as, as being part of the, the same project whose ultimate aim was getting, getting the right answer, finding the truth. And part of that stems from the, the philosophy club. You know, all of these guys who Keynes is debating with um, early on, at least, are disciples of, of G.E. Moore, and they feel like they're doing sort of applied Mooreism. So they're going to apply more to mathematics. They're going to apply more to reasoning. They're going to apply them to to probability. Um, they're part of a school, right? It's a school of thought. And what's important is that together they get to to the right answer. So even when they get into these heated, heated debates and are going back and forth and and you know arm wrestling over this stuff. They do feel a sense of shared or sort of common purpose in, in what they are doing. Um, Frank Ramsey's psychology, I just don't know in the same detail that I know Keynes. So I, I don't want to speculate on um, what, what gave Ramsey the chutzpah to, to challenge Keynes. But, you know, I think he was a, he was a really brilliant guy who was confident in, in his intellect, who was accustomed to being around people like this. You know, if you're hanging out in Cambridge... As, a, as an undergraduate and then, a, you know, a, a, an adult, um, I, I can't remember if, if Ramsey got a, a formal, you know, higher degree. A lot of these people in, in Cambridge philosophy, like Wittgenstein, you know, get, don't really have degrees when they're doing their, their best work, but they, they're, you know, chummy with the, the, the philosophers who do. You know, if, if you're hanging out with Ludwig Wittgenstein and Bertrand Russell and, you know, all day, then, you know, Taking on Keynes at some point is maybe not the craziest thing you've ever done. Um, uh, but it, it is, you know, I, I made a conscious choice in the book not to get into, uh, into this particular debate because I felt like Keynes on probability here was more concerned with the philosophical implications of knowledge here. And it was his, it was the implications for Wittgenstein that mattered more for Keynes in 1921 than those from Ramsey, which is one reason why he's happy to concede the point. Well, I, don't see, I wouldn't say happy, but willing to concede the debate to, mm. to Ramsey. Um, but if you are interested in, um, in this particular um, conflict, there's a very good biography of Frank Ramsey that, that uh, came out last year. The name of the author is escaping me at the moment. Cheryl Mazak. Um, Cheryl Mazak, yes. It's an excellent book um, and, and very much worth your time. So at the heart of the general theory lies a conception of uncertainty and that pervades economic life, it drives economic fluctuations and Keynes's idea of uncertainty is distinct from risk. And actually the best exposition of his understanding of uncertainty can be found in a response to critics of his general theory in 1937, so a year after it's published, where he says that by uncertain knowledge, let me explain it, not, do not merely mean merely to distinguish what is known for certain from what is only probable. The game of roulette is not subject in this sense to uncertainty. Um, the sense in which I'm using the term is that in which the prospect of a European war is uncertain or the price of copper and the rate of interest 20 years hence. About these matters, there is no scientific basis on which to form any calculable probability whatever we simply do not know. Should we view Keynes's understanding of uncertainty as espoused in the general theory 
as a new idea or is it present in a treatise on probability? I, I think his ideas change a little bit. Um, no one has the same view of the world um, in their early 50s that they do in their mid-30s. Um, but I think, I mean, the reason that I, I chose to write about the treatise on probability was not just because he wrote it and it's a book that Keynes did. I mean, there, there are lesser and, you know, books of lesser and greater importance in the, in the Keynes canon. I, I think you can draw a pretty, a pretty clear line from the treatise on probability to the general theory. And I think that that idea of, of uncertainty about, um, <laughs> he says in, in the general theory, he says, you know, we think that we're making these mathematical predictions about the ability of different investments to, you know, to, to yield a profit. But we, we just don't know about these, you know, about corporate earnings a couple of years hence any more than we know, you know, about the prospects for an expedition to the South Pole. Um, things happen. And I think this year, um, where we've had this massive global pandemic, which has completely upended the global economy, is, is a great illustration of, of that idea. Anybody who was doing macroeconomic forecasting in 2018 um, was going to get the wrong answer, and they were going to get it through no fault of their own. <laughs> no one knew what was coming, um, and it upended things in this way that, that will change uh, policymaking and, and views about about the economy even um, for for years to come. You know, in the United States, people are taking, I think, broadly Keynesian ideas about the economy much more seriously today than they were certainly ten years ago. But even even I think two years ago, uh, as a result mm-hmm. of the pandemic. For me, uncertainty and its connection with what he calls the animal spirits is the most beautiful and pregnant idea mm-hmm. in. The general theory. That's why chapter 12 is my favorite chapter. Well, much of the rest of the book is sort of incomprehensible to me. But the the connection between <laughs> uncertainty and animal spirits is that Keynes says, like, there's no way people can use precise calculations to form their long-term expectations because the Bayesian decision tree forks out forever in front of us. Therefore, the reason people do anything at all, like the reason we start businesses and take economic decisions must be due to animal spirits. It must be due to something else. I think the quote is, um, well, I don't think I have it here. The quote is, if the animal spirits are dimmed and the spontaneous optimism falters, leaving us to depend on nothing but mathematical expectation, enterprise will fade and die. But um, while I was on that riff, you gave the thumbs up, Zach. I take it that chapter 12 is, is also your favorite chapter of the general theory. I mean, how could it not be? It's it's the easily the most uh, accessibly written of of the the twenty four, um, with the possible exception of chapter twenty four, which I think is actually kind of mystical in ways that make it uh, <laughs> a, a little bit. Even though you can you can get a handle on what he's saying, it's it's what he's saying is is just a bit fuzzy. Um, yeah, chapter twelve. I, I think um, Paul Krugman gave. Uh, a, a very influential talk mm. on um, on Keynes uh, in in reading the general theory several years ago, where he said there there are basically two kinds of Keynesians: there are Chapter Twelve Keynesians and there are Chapters One through Four Keynesians. And I think, as a description of of the, the different schools of thought, he was absolutely right. Um, there there are people who 
who look at chapters one through four and say, well, the, the refutation of state's laws is what's important. This stuff in chapter 12 about uncertainty and the ability of financial markets to, uh, you know, effectively allocate resources based on beliefs about the future. Um, that stuff is, is very interesting and, and maybe useful and good, but not core to the meaning of the book. And I, I disagree with that, that Krugman paper um, on, on the, the sort of theoretical um, a sort of theoretical basis rather than a descriptive basis of the field. I, I think to really, I think the, the theoretical meat of chapters one through four, what makes them make sense, the reason why Say's Law uh, can, be, can be thrown out is because of what Keynes says in, in chapter 12. Now, there are, other, there are other interpreters who say, no, 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 it's chapter 17 or maybe it's chapter 16 and the way he talks about interest rates and liquidity preference and all, all this other stuff. And, you know, people make whole careers detailing why they think that is true uh, and, and, you know, I wish them well. Um, but, but I think chapter 12 is really where the action is. And, and to your point there about where enterprise is afoot, you know, Keynes using the word enterprise with a capital E doesn't just start – in the general theory, in uh, in in the, the treatise on money in, in 1930, he talks about a distinction between thrift and enterprise, and he, he capitalizes both of these things. And he's saying that you know for a long time, economists have believed that large personal fortunes are are necessary in order to create the sort of capital base, the pool of capital that can be used to make the investments, you know, to buy the factories and the equipment that give people jobs. So essentially thrift and and by extension inequality is required in order to create a system that lifts everybody up, albeit in in unequal ways. And and Keynes just says, you know, no, you know, were the seven wonders of the world built by thrift? I deem it doubtful. It's enterprise. It's this sort of spirit of 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 this sort of will to do something, to act, that is embedded in in human beings. That can be activated by different circumstances. That matters. Not not the the, the sort of um, retrenchment and 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 defensive crouch that uh, that is represented by thrift. So there again, I think it's it's useful to have a background in um, in the treatise on money and Keynes's earlier works when reading the general theory to to get some idea of of what he's going for there. But honestly, if if you are um, if you are curious about Keynes and, and haven't haven't read him before, chapter twelve is fairly accessible. You can pick it up and 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 you know get get a good idea of what's going on there um, without you know having a you know an extensive background in. in economics or uh, or Frank Ramsey and, and Ludwig Wittgenstein. Yeah, several great metaphors in chapter 12 as well, like beating the gun, the beauty contest. You describe Keynes's proposals. Incredible. <laughs> yeah. You, you describe Keynes's proposals at the Bretton Woods Conference in 1944 as a breakthrough, potentially on par with the general theory, whereas most people would view the general theory as the climax of his intellectual career. So why are you right and why are most people wrong? Oh, teeing me up for my next piece. I'm working on a magazine article about this right now for the um, 75th anniversary of the, the Bretton Woods Institutions. Um, oh, cool. Yes, good timing. Um, well, if you look at the policy proposals that Keynes makes over the course of his life, um, the general theory is, is a bit thin on, on practical Ideas. I think it's widely interpreted as being a book that advises countercyclical spending, um, 
in particular, you know, the idea of putting money in consumers' pockets being a way to uh, boost aggregate demand and, and increase economic activity, um, which is, you know, one, one policy implication. Uh, at the end of the book, he also says um, we will need a somewhat comprehensive socialization of investment. What does that mean? Uh, what is somewhat comprehensive? Um, e- even what does socialization mean in, in this context? Keynes has a very flexible uh, idea about about what he means by socialism and, and socialization. Sometimes he means these things as a sort of epithet, and sometimes he means them as sort of a progressive ideal. It just depends on the context. So when you get to Bretton Woods, Keynes has been wrestling with this idea of the the state's power to secure good outcomes and to uh, insulate society from from shock, and he has come to this this belief that sustained high levels of public investment are uh, not not only necessary but also just very good. That by by running very high levels of public investment for years on end. Um, we can not only tame the business cycle in a sense, but also lead to a world where people don't have to work that much, where where we've actually solved so many social problems that we don't need to secure a decent livelihood for people by, by making them go out and, and, you know, do things with the resources of the earth. It's a very utopian, utopian vision. Um, that's a much more, you know, developed philosophical view than what he expresses in the general theory. In Bretton Woods, most of that stuff about public investment is happening in, in, in the back of his mind from the perspective of a British imperial manager. Um, just as he managed uh, British war finances in World War I and for, you know, in large part over the course of World War II, um, at Bretton Woods, he's trying to figure out how to give the British government some sort of wiggle room to do things that are necessary to create all of the, the things that he wants to have for, for British people. So he's, he's involved at this point in um, helping develop the beverage plan, which is uh, you know, essentially the creation of the modern British welfare state, the National Health Service, um, you know, old age pensions, uh, the, the, everything that, that we associate with the welfare state today in Britain. And he knows that those things are expensive, and he knows that the American government isn't particularly interested in helping Britain. So there's this one side of him that, that's just trying to, uh, trying to give, him, give himself some, some wiggle room there. But his grand vision is of creating an international monetary system um, that will prevent international conflict. That is a much bigger project, I think, than the project that he is undertaking in the general theory. The general theory is related to that project, and there's, there, there are some lines that I quote in the book about, you know, Inadequacies with the trading system, and you know, if, if countries can keep to that, can manage aggregate demand with these sort of what we now call Keynesian strategies, they can they can you know uh, take care of full employment and not beat each other's throats and, and and be preying on each other through trade systems, which you know it's related to this idea. Uh, but I don't think it's the central thrust of, of the general theory. The general theory is about changing the minds of economists about how the economy works. Bretton Woods is about literally creating a, a, a system where countries do not have to be forced into 
a sort of deflationary strategy in order to meet their um, meet the demands and expectations of fair play on the in the international world. If if you have to create unemployment through through deflation, um, he Keynes believes you will create international enmity. People will blame foreigners for their their own uh, misery, and and to some extent. Um, they they will be right. I mean, they. I think the the failure of the gold standard over the 1920s, you know, shows that the, the movement of international money, um, you know, you can to some extent blame <laughs> blame not you know maybe maybe not uh, you know just farmers living in other countries, but but the way the monetary system is set up, you know, advantages you know certain uh, certain parties more than others. So he's he's trying to eliminate this source of international conflict. Now the the problem with Bretton Woods is that he loses just about every single one of these battles. His his grand vision um, is just overruled by Harry Dexter White and and the American government, who just have a, a much better hand to play at Bretton Woods. And so all of those little tricks and exceptions that um, I, I was talking about earlier with regard to preserving the British government's ability to act within the Bretton Woods system become a, a, a significant focus of his, his time and attention. Um, but had his, but, but even with, with those, those losses, I think the aims of Bretton Woods, um, though, the, though it, though the Americans win and it becomes a, a sort of, um, I guess, instrument of Cold War policy or, or American imperialism. Um, the idea that you can use big diplomatic, economic, and monetary arrangements to create international harmony and that they should be used to create international harmony, um, I, I think is something that is still kind of novel today. I, I think Harry Dexter White understood what he was doing as a diplomatic mission. And I think he got a lot of support for that idea from John Maynard Keynes. Um, and he felt, even though he was you know, literally going to battle with him in these negotiations day in and day out for years, even before Bretton Woods actually happened, I think under his, his view of what the stakes were and of what, what could be done with this, this agreement is very much informed by, by Keynes himself. And in, in, you know, to some extent, White, as a young man, um, you know, really looked up to Keynes as an economist and views him as, as something of an intellectual hero, even though they're they're sort of at loggerheads here. So, I I do think that the actual treaty that um, that was signed, even though it, it reflects American interests much more so than British interests, and certainly doesn't have the grandeur of of Keynes's proposals, is trying to do something that we haven't, at least in the United States, we haven't done with economic treaties and economic diplomacy in, in decades now. And, and I, I think when I look around at the world today and see inequality, climate change, uh, the rise of authoritarianism, uh, you know, that kind of economic diplomacy strikes me as, as something that, that, that could be of, of great value today. A few questions about the process of writing a book, if I may. How, sure. long, did the, how long did the price of peace take to write? Depends on how you count. Uh, if, if, if you take the long view, I, I, st- 
I started reading about Keynes in 2000, like seriously reading about Keynes in 2008. So uh, from then to the completion of the final manuscript in 2019 is 11 years. Um, I think that's a little bit of an excessive timeline. Um, I started the proposal in, I guess, the spring of 2016, worked on the proposal for about a year, um, signed a contract in March of 2017, and then delivered the first draft in, I think, September of 2018, and then the final draft, which was, I guess, the third, third or fourth time through, um, in, in September of 2019. So it took me a year to do the proposal, which is a lot of work and research, right? Um, so it's not like you're starting from scratch when you start on the, the book after the, the contract's accepted. Then a year and a half to get the first draft done, and then another year to get that worked out. And the book changed radically over the course of the different drafts. Um, just problems that you see in the first draft that you, res- you know, require research and the introduction of new ideas. Things were cut. Frank Ramsey got cut. For, I think of the second draft, for instance. <laughs> you know, you're, oh, you're trying to tell the story. They they tell you when you're when you're writing these things, you know, to to slaughter your children. I think is the metaphor, which is a terrible metaphor, especially once you have children, because cutting things from a book is not like uh, killing a human being. Um, but you become very attached to the the things in, in your book. And I was very aware when I was writing this one that, you know. If people wanted to learn every detail of John Maynard Keynes's life, that there there was a place for that, and and it's the three volume um, biography by by Robert Skidelsky. Uh, if if they're feeling slightly less ambitious, they can they can look at Donald Moggridge's thousand page tome. So I knew I didn't want to write you know eighteen hundred pages. There's going to be stuff that I I, I needed to remove to, to create. Uh, to simplify the narrative, but deciding what to add and what to cut, you know, took a long time. There's there's quite a bit on Keynes and liberal imperialism in in that book that was not there in the first draft that that came in in the second draft, um, and quite a bit on on um, Bretton Woods and World War One that entered in the third draft. So, uh, you know, it 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 was quite a process. It's it's it wasn't just like we were copy editing that last year. <laughs> <laughs> How did you manage your time while you were writing the book? Badly. Um, the first, <laughs> yeah, the first six months were uh, just great because I, I got book leave. My day job, I'm a reporter at uh, at HuffPost, and uh, that you know, they, they gave me five and a half months off to just work on the book, and said, you know, your job will be here when you get back. So that was great. I mean, just focusing on the book, reading and writing and reading and writing. When you get to a, a you know, a, a place where you feel like you can't write and you can't figure out like how to fix the chapter, the answer is usually that you don't have enough research. So you, then you got to go read some more. Um, and that's, I mean, that was the life. Just writing a book that I love and uh, and reading all this fascinating material. That was great. Uh, when I had to go back to work, though, and the first draft was only about two thirds done. Uh, that that became very difficult. So my wife was working on a book at the same time. Um, hers is about a history of U.S. immigration policy. And so we, I, that, I think that helped because I had to spend evenings and weekends working on the book, and so did she. Uh, so it wasn't like I was, you know, neglecting my family 
<laughs> to pursue this grand career. Uh, we were both do- doing that. We'd you know, just sit in the, in the office or the living room and take breaks to tell each other what crazy things we just read. So that, that, that was really, <laughs> really fun. But, you know, if you have kids, you can't do that. So the next book's going to be trickier. We have a, we have a toddler now. So, but as you can tell, I mean, I, I had six months. I got the first draft two-thirds done. I didn't turn the, the draft in for another year. So when you have to work five days a week, uh, and you have evenings and weekends to do research and writing, it just takes much, much longer to get things, to get things complete. Um, and, you know, my job was very flexible. I took a lot of time off the, the year before the book came out while we were going through edits. Um, I have a pretty good job where I have a lot of vacation time, at least by U.S. standards. So I, I used all of that on the book. And uh, again, not something that is generally conducive to a harmonious relationship, but my <laughs> wife was doing the exact same thing. So <laughs> we, we, we cut each other a lot of slack. I assume you and your wife proofread each other's books. What is your wife's best quality as a reader of your work? Oh boy, that is by far the highest stakes question you've asked. <laughs> um, uh, so my wife is an editor. She's she's the national editor at the New York Times. Um, she is very she's she's good with everything. I mean, all all of her. She, she, it's not like she's bad at copy editing or bad at sentence to sentence stuff. Um, she was really good at taking chunks of the book and saying what. Just and, and just forcing me to focus on the idea I was trying to get across with with like a chapter. So chapter by chapter, what is the point of this chapter? How does it fit in with the broader the broader message you're trying to tell in this the broader story you're trying to tell in this book? And how do the components of this chapter fit in with the point of of the chapter? So why is it important in this particular case? that we get into Frank Ramsey. You're not going to talk about Bajan stuff later. It's, it's, you know, at least that's what we, we decided. May have been a mistake. I, 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 got, I think I got dinged for it in a, in a, a review somewhere. Um, there are people who like Frank Ramsey a lot. But, uh, but what, what is the point of, of all of this stuff? You know, you have these great anecdotes about Kane's, you know, fox hunting and going to the ballet. They're... <laughs> You know they're charming, and they break up the the movement between you know economic theory and political machinations quite well. But how do you make that into something that fits? How do you make those those different parts of Keynes's life fit into what you're trying to tell with the story? Um, she was just very good at at helping to focus on things and and to show you know when it was clear that you know I had I had stuff that had to go or had stuff that needed to be. Um, amplified or, or brought to the forefront uh, in, in a better way. You know, I think a, a really good editor isn't just somebody who tames your excesses. It's somebody who, who points out you know, places where you can be more excessive. <laughs> and, and she's good yeah. at both of those. One of the things I loved about the book was it had a great insights to pages ratio. Do you think about that <laughs> consciously? Uh well, so that's sort of you're you're sort of saying it's it's efficient, right? <laughs> no, 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 something a bit different. I mean, like when I open a book, I enjoy being able to learn something or several things on any given page, and the references and anecdotes and insights and 
interesting facts that I'd never heard of before were leaping off almost every page. Well, that's great. I love to hear it. Uh, I, I think I read a lot of economics um, and I read a lot of a lot of policy papers as part of my job. I, I cover economic policy, U.S. economic policy. And uh, I don't typically find the process of reading economic papers to be particularly enjoyable. Um, I think some of that's because the writing is bad. Some of that's because the writing is intentionally bad so that people take it seriously as, as an economics paper rather than a, a work of popular journalism or something. Um, I think sometimes it can be... It can, it, any profession, any specialty gets bogged down in jargon in a, in a way that allows you to communicate more quickly with other specialists and more, more efficiently, but, but loses um, people who are, who are not specialists and I think often even obscures the number of interesting things that are that are happening within um, you know within even you know just a short you know twenty or thirty page you know journal article. So with somebody like Keynes, he's always operating on so many different sort of intellectual planes. Um, there's there's Keynes the, the the art lover. There's Keynes the philosopher who's concerned with reason and knowledge. There's Keynes the the political actor who is trying to you know stop a war and create world peace. And there's Keynes the economist who's who's trying to understand what has gone wrong with with the gold standard and and how to create uh, a monetary system that just basically works. Uh, Never mind Keynes, the you know the the depression fighting uh, guy who's just trying to get his country through you know the next six months uh, over and over again. All of these things are are linked um, in one person, so they, there are relationships intellectually between all of them. But uh, you know, trying trying to find the meaning of any particular act that Keynes is engaged in at any given time, there are often just many sort of many facets to the significance of that. And so uh, I don't know if I was consciously trying to have a lot of insights per page. I just think Keynes as a, as a historical figure was somebody who was just spraying insights all over the place. And so, <laughs> and so when you cover him, it's, it's, it's very easy to, uh, uh, you know, to, to get to, 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 to present those. Some final questions on Keynes. So I'm going to invite you to participate in counterfactual history here with all of its attendant risks. All right. Could Keynes have developed the ideas he developed if he hadn't belonged to his various social circles, the Bloomsbury set, the apostles, the circus, if instead he was a reclusive genius? Yeah, so all the caveats of who really knows, um, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think so. Um, I I think I I think Keynes needs other people, um, both to tell them that he's a genius, so that he can have the confidence to do these things. One, one of the things we haven't talked about is that Keynes was convinced that he was very very ugly his entire life, and he had uh, he had very low self esteem about himself as uh, as as a romantic partner, um, and he was also I think really uh, depressed 
uh, saddened, felt set back by his inadequacies as a as an artist because he's around all of these these artists all the time, and so he's constantly trying to prove himself to people in Bloomsbury that he really does belong in this crowd. That he's not just this numbers guy who works at Treasury. He is one of the you know aesthetes who gets to hang out with Pablo Picasso too, and. I think you can see that clearly in the economic consequences of the piece with the, the, the character sketches he does of, of Wilson and Clemenceau and Lloyd George. These are, you know, he's trying to compete with Virginia Woolf. He's trying to show his friends back in Bloomsbury and Lytton Strachey, I'm an artist like you and you can do art within this kind of, this kind of work and this kind of writing. Um, so I think he feels a need to both to prove himself to them, but I also think he's he's getting ideas from them. Um, I think his view of the world is constantly shaped and reinforced by them in a way that being a reclusive genius, uh, you know, he has friends who are reclusive geniuses. Um, Wittgenstein, I think, is the most, uh, is the best example of that. You know, Wittgenstein just goes off and is c- kind of, angry and miserable for long periods of his life and then comes back to Cambridge uh, and then goes off again. Um, And, you know, Wittgenstein produces, you know, I think, you know, basically two really important works over the course of his, of his life. Um, Keynes is just constantly popping off masterpieces. Um, And, and they're not all books. I mean, I, I think, I think the proposals that he, he puts forward at, at Bretton Woods, even though they're not enacted, I mean, I think those are really serious masterpieces of, of uh, the form in which they're, um, they're participating. And uh, I don't think that would happen without, without Bloomsbury. Now, he does leave Bloomsbury behind um, really after he marries his wife, Lydia Lapakova, in 1925. I would say he leaves them behind, but he, he gets some social and emotional distance from them. Um, and I think his wife gives him a certain sense of confidence that um, he he didn't have before. But uh, yeah, I I just find it hard to believe that he would be he would be even if he was producing great works. I don't think it would be with the frequency that he he created them, and I don't think they would have had the same content. Hmm. Did Cain see some of himself in Isaac Newton, and if so, which parts? I think so. Um, again, with a caveat that I you know, haven't studied Newton's life in the detail that I've studied Keynes, but Keynes wrote a couple of very, very uh, impressive biographical sketches of, of Newton during his life. And I think my favorite quote from, there are so many good quotes in, this, in these, but he, he says, Newton wasn't the first of the scientists or, or the last of the alchemists. He, he was the last of the magicians. And, mm. and he, meant, he meant this as a compliment. Um, he, he said that Newton had this ability to sort of intuit or divine some important uh, fact about how the world worked. And, and that, you know, some, some secret hidden in God's plan. And, uh, and that he could then dress that intuition up in, in mathematics in order to persuade people that this, you know, this flash of insight was really true. Um, but that, that Newton was really, uh, in, in a way, uh, an artist um, in addition to being a scientist. That, that really what makes Newtonian 
insights in mathematics or, or in physics and, or even economics. People forget that Newton was a really important figure in the monetary policy debates of the, the late 17th century. Um, what, what made those, those, uh, that work so impressive was, was a, a flash of insight that, that's very similar to you know, the muse that possesses a poet. Uh, he was just very good at using the language of mathematics and the language of science to uh, to persuade people. And so, in in Newton, uh, science was was an art. And I think I, I I don't know if that's true. You know, I, I don't know if if Newton. I just don't know. I'm not disputing Keynes's assessment here um, because I just don't know enough about Newton's life. But I do think that that's the way Keynes thought of himself. I think that Keynes wanted to be thought of as a creative artist because he wanted the approval of all of these other creative artists in, in his life. And he believed that the work that he was doing in economics was not just, you know, impressive algebra, but, but uh, you know, creative work um, that would, you know, that belonged uh, you know, alongside people like Virginia Woolf. Hmm. Yeah, Keynes was incredibly intuitive but he also put that intuition to practical use. And I think those twin aspects of Kane as an economist, the intuitiveness and the practicality were in a, in a strange way summarized by Hayek uh, shortly after Hayek received the Nobel prize. He made some comments about how Keynes, you know, was a great man, but not a great economist. I think the, there's a, there's a video of this, but I think the direct quote was, yeah. Keynes was brilliant, but economics was only a sideline for him. And I think that's more of a compliment than Hayek perhaps realized. Hayek and Keynes have just a very complicated relationship. Um, mm. Politically, of course, they don't get along at all. Um, Hayek is, is, you know, very much a conservative um, aristocrat, whereas uh, Keynes is kind of a liberal aristocrat, liberal in the, the American use of the term. But they are both working from a sense of deep respect for Enlightenment, capital L, liberalism. Um, it, they do take these thinkers seriously, um, people like John Stuart Mill and Adam Smith, Neither of them like Karl Marx very much. Um, they, they have a lot, a lot in common in that respect. And so their political disputes, I think, are more heated because they both think that they are, they are presenting the, the sort of true legacy of, um, of the same set of, of sort of shared principles and, and foundations. And I, I think in the United States today, increasingly, um, People just take the sort of Hayekian interpretation of Enlightenment liberalism to be liberalism. I don't know how it's, it's thought of in the rest of the world, but but Keynes would just have thought it was totally outrageous that uh, you know it is it is liberal to be opposed to a, a you know a, a social welfare state or, or to you know he, he helped socialize British medicine you know, um, but he thought that those were very very liberal things to do the same way that Hayek thought that like, you know, the gold standard and laissez-faire were, were fundamentally liberal things to do. Um, I, I think Hayek did mean that as a bit of a dig and, and Hayek was very well versed in all of this economics coming out of Austria and because he's an Austrian and uh, Keynes was not quite as well versed. I mean, I don't want to say he wasn't well versed because he cites all of these people in the treatise on money. And this is the time when you know, 
there, there's no internet, right? You can't, you, if you want to get your hands on journals in other languages of economics, it takes some real work to do. Um, but Hayek thinks that, that Keynes's interpretations of those Austrian thinkers in the treatise on money are wrong. And so he then says, see, look, Keynes didn't read anything. He's, this is just a sideshow. He really didn't know anything about the history of economics. I don't think I don't think that's a fair assessment of, of Keynes's level of knowledge, but his point that economics was a sideshow for him, uh, you know, I think I, I think there's something to that. I mean, I I think I, I don't know if I would say sideshow because it, it's such a big focus of he spends so much time on it, but I I don't think he he thinks economics, you know, it, as a young man, I don't think he believes economics is going to be the great project of his life, and it's not clear to me that at Bretton Woods he thinks. The general theory is the great project of his of his life. Um, he's he's a statesman and and a philosopher. I think before th- those those activities take priority for him above uh, being an economist. And so it, to that, in it, to, in that sense, I think Hayek is Hayek is right. Could economics ever produce another person of Keynes's stature? Yes, uh, but will it? I think is the, uh, the real question. I, I, economics has has got to adapt. Um, it it at least in the Anglo-American tradition over the past forty fifty years, um, it has just narrowed the scope of what it does to a place where um, I, I don't want to dismiss the quality of the work that, that a lot of economists do. Uh, sometimes I've used economists broadly and people who do very good work have said, hey, you're, you're, you're disparaging my profession. And I, I you know, it's, there's, there's good work that's being done in economics, but it's not this grand philosophical political project the way that it was with, with Keynes. Um, it's, it's very much a, a textbook oriented exercise where we know what the rules are. We've got our, we've got our principles. Let's apply them to these, uh, you know, these, these facts before us. And, you know, run the model, get the answer. And uh, that is, or, you know, th- there's, there's value to that. Um, there's value to empirical studies on, you know, how things, how things actually work. Um, but I think the theoretical sweep of, of Keynesian thought, um, you know, I think to some extent Hayek had it too, um, moving in a different direction, I don't think, you know, the, the way Friedman is a sort of successor to Hayek in this in this way. I don't think he has anywhere near the kind of grandeur or ambition philosophically that that Hayek has. And I, you know, I I think Galbraith in in the the Keynesian tradition comes comes pretty close. I think Galbraith is thinking about about big ideas too. Um, I don't think he's quite as grandiose as Keynes because he, he doesn't have the the background in you know Cambridge philosophy that that Keynes has, um, but he is he is working with big ideas and trying to do things that Keynes is trying to do with economics. But in our own time, I mean, I, I think I think uh, Thomas Piketty has been has been trying to do economics that way. I you know his his new one on. Um, it's escaping me. Capital and ideology, I think, is, is the name. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know that that is is an attempt to do political theory and economics together to 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 get back to a sort of political economy way of of doing things. Um, but I 
I don't know. I think the profession would have to would have to change quite a bit and become more introspective and more willing to um, to countenance challenges to its its basic assumptions than it's been. the 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 field has changed in the United States over the past couple of years in that it's become more Keynesian on policy uh, outcomes, but I don't know if it's become more Keynesian on the philosophical foundations. I think people are more likely to say, well, we don't really know what the relationship between you know, government budget deficits and inflation is right now than they are to say, we need to rethink you know, <laughs> economic humanity and, and what it means to be uh, an economic agent and an actor. Um, and I don't think you get rewarded in the field for, for trying to do work like that. I think you have to go to, to philosophy or, or um, politics departments to do that um, or, or be a journalist. Um, I think in the United States right now, academia in general is, is kind of viewed with less prestige and um, and authority than it was 15 or 20 years ago because of this hyper-specialization that's gone on in every department, not just economics. So yes, but probably not. Well, if people want inspiration, I can recommend a book called The Price of Peace, Money, Democracy, and the Life of John Maynard Keynes. Zach, thank you so much for joining me. Come back anytime. Thanks so much for having me. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Two things before you go. One, if you want to read the transcript or the show notes for this episode, you'll find them on my website, thejspod.com. Number two, please subscribe to the show. It means that you won't miss new episodes like this one, and it also makes it easier for other people to find us, and I would appreciate your help. The audio engineer for the Jolly Swagman podcast is Lawrence Moorfield. Our dehydrated video editor is Al Fetty. I'm Joe Walker. Until next week, thank you for listening. Ciao.